Thanks for pressing play. About 71% of the Earth's surface is covered in water. And oceans are about 96.5% of all of that water. According to NOAA, the U.S. National Ocean Service, scientists estimate that 50 to 80% of the oxygen production on Earth comes from the ocean. The majority of this production comes from oceanic plankton, drifting plants, algae, and some bacteria. Further, the ocean absorbs 50% more carbon dioxide than the atmosphere does. And scientists estimate that about 1 million species of animals live in our oceans. And, unfortunately, approximately 40% of the fish caught in our world is caught illegally. So to say that the oceans matter is an understatement. And to say that there's some bad shit going on in the ocean is uh, probably also an understatement. It's a fact that our oceans are the reason for life on our planet. Our guest today, Captain Paul Watson, says, quote, we are the ocean. And Captain Paul is the founder of Sea Shepherd, a nonprofit focused on saving marine wildlife. And they are not a protest organization. They are a nonprofit that intervenes with poachers and takes action to stop them. Captain Paul, interestingly enough, is also a co-founder of Greenpeace. And you're about to hear why he left Greenpeace in the 1970s to start Sea Shepherd. Now, Captain Paul has been called an eco-terrorist and morally bankrupt by some and lauded as a hero by many others. He's clearly on a mission to protect marine animals, and he's taken on very big fights, risked his life. He's wrestled with Interpol, been involved with countless legal battles, and been, in, been arrested in places like Germany, Canada, Norway, and Japan. He's been profiled by CBS's 60 Minutes. He's on Animal Planet's Whale Wars. He's been featured in several documentaries, including Eco Pirate, the story of Paul Watson, and Netflix. Seaspiracy. Uh, now, this episode that you're about to hear is for anyone who cares about our planet, wildlife, and learning what it takes to dedicate your life to be on a mission, on a cause that matters to you. And pay special attention to what Captain Paul says about the connection between coronavirus and the ocean. Whether you love him or hate him, every second of this dialogue is riveting. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue podcast for people who want to go deep with some of the most legendary minds of our time. We are brought to you by my friends at NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And my friends at Splunk, visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. Splunk is the leader in data to everything. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first organic flax milk. Check them out at MalibuMilkWithAY.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Captain Paul, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for joining. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Now, as you might imagine, I have maybe somewhere around a thousand questions for you, but... Um, how about before I start, I'm curious, what is most on your mind right now? 
Right now, we have our ships are at sea. Uh, we have 11 vessels out there uh, chasing down poachers in the Mediterranean, uh, the coast of West Africa, in uh, waters off Mexico and Peru and Colombia. So we're pretty busy. Huh? And so all 11 ships are currently deployed. Yes. As you might expect, I, I've tried to do a fair amount of research on, on, on you and on Sea Shepherd, but I, I would love to know, what are these 11 ships doing? Well, I can go through them. Uh, the Bob Barker right now is uh, just uh, completed uh, a campaign off of uh, in the waters of Sierra Leone, where in the last month we've uh, arrested and seized uh, six poaching vessels that were in their waters. Uh, the uh, Sam Simon has just completed a campaign uh, to protect dolphins in the Bay of Biscay from the French trawling fleet and is uh, gearing up to return. The... Uh, our new vessel, the Sea Eagle, has just arrived in the Mediterranean to join our other vessel, the Conrad. And what they're doing is confiscating illegal um, fish aggregating devices and uh, patrolling for poachers. And uh, let me see, the uh, Sharpie, the Farley Mode, and the uh, uh, and the John Paul de Jory are engaged in the Baquita Refuge in the Gulf of uh, Mexico. And what they're doing there is uh, confiscating um, uh, illegally set gill nets. Uh, we've uh, pulled in about 150,000 meters uh, so far. I'm quite confident if it wasn't for our activities there over the last few years, the Paquita porpoise would now be extinct. Our vessel, the Martin Sheen, our sailing vessel, is a research vessel, and it's uh, presently working uh, in western Mexican waters. Uh, in November, it discovered a new species of a uh, beaked whale, which was, uh, was quite amazing. I didn't think there was anything left to discover uh, on that. And uh, our vessel, the Ocean Warrior, is working uh, off of Peru right now. Our concern there is a massive uh, Chinese fishing fleet, so we're looking uh, for infractions uh, from that fleet. Our vessel, the uh, Emmanuel Bronner, is doing anti-poaching patrols uh, in, the, in the Baltic. Wow, that's uh, quite an agenda. I also must say, as a fellow Canadian uh, now living in uh, California, I love that one of your ships is named the Farley Moat. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> Well, it's actually our second vessel called the Farley Mullet, and uh, Farley was actually our international uh, chair for Sea Shepherd for, for many years until he died. Well, even as a young man, uh, for me growing up in Montreal, he was one of my heroes. And uh, so I want to talk to you about what all these ships are doing, but maybe tell me a little bit about your relationship with him. Well, I first got involved with uh, Farley way back in 1984 when uh, we, I led a campaign to, st uh, to stop uh, the culling of wolves uh, by the government of British Columbia and in the Yukon. And uh, I set up a group called uh, Friends of the Wolf, and uh, Farley uh, joined me on that uh, effort, and uh, we've been working together ever since. Fantastic. And is he um, as great in person as I would like to imagine that he would be? He's definitely, uh, he was definitely uh, a one of a kind. Uh, he's, uh, you know, had incredible uh, history, both in, uh, you know, protecting nature as a conservationist. Also, you know, he was a, a hero during World War II. Uh, one of the things a lot of people don't know about Farley is that at the end of the war, he went around and collected all of this material, uh, which made it into the Canadian War Museum. Uh, things like everything from a B-2 rocket to a miniature submarine. And, uh, you know, he actually went into... Uh, German camps where they were surrendering and traded vodka for uh, for ordnance, which he then then he packed it all on a ship to send to uh, Montreal. But uh, when it it got to Montreal, somebody said, "Who's paying for it?" And uh, he said, "I don't know. I was just told to pack it up, and now you got it, so it's your problem." And if it wasn't for that, they didn't have the stuff in the uh, war museum in Canada. Wow, I hadn't heard that story. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, that's very very cool. 
Uh, now, I'm, I'm curious. I remember years ago as a kid in Montreal, there was a piece of graffiti I saw um, uh, just, just off St. Lawrence Street or what we call the main. And it has stuck with me ever since. And the graffiti said, too many causes without a rebel. And um, so I'm curious, as I look back on your life, it would appear to me that you are a rebel for many causes. And so how do you choose to do uh, what, what you've dedicated your life to do? Well, I really made no choice in my life. When I was 10 years old, I spent the summer swimming with a family of beavers in, in New Brunswick. And uh, the next summer, when I went back to find the beavers, found out they were all gone, found out trappers had taken them during the winter. And that made me quite angry. Uh, and I spent that winter, uh, when I was 11, uh, walking trap lines and freeing animals and destroying traps. And I guess I've been doing that now for 60 years. <laughs> In 1969, I was the youngest founding member of the Greenpeace Foundation. Then I left Greenpeace in 1977 to establish Sea Shepherd. And I look at our world today, and I look at many of the things that happen. Of course, murder at sea of incredible animals is, is one of the most horrific things that happens on our planet that many people seem to be unaware of. And there's a lot of injustice that just seems to go by the wayside and nobody seems to really give a shit about. And so I'm curious what you think a person who stands up and says, not on my watch is like versus candidly, most people who just go about their daily life. Well, it's uh, there's a lot of challenges, uh, of course. But, you know, back in 1973, I, I learned a very, very valuable lesson. And uh, I was a volunteer medic for the American Indian Movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And we were surrounded by about 3,000 uh, U.S. federal agents who were shooting into the village every night, about 20,000 rounds a night. And they wounded 46, killed two. And uh, I went to Russell Means, who was a uh, the leader for the American Indian movement during that occupation. And, and I said, look, the, you know, the odds against us are overwhelming. Uh, we, we don't have any hope of winning. And uh, he looked at me and he said, well, we're not concerned about the odds. And we're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right place to be, the right thing to do, and the right time to do it. Don't worry about the future. Focus on the present. What we do in the present will define what the future will be. And so that's what I've done ever since. I don't really fret about the future. I just focus on what we can do in the present. And hopefully that will define a better future for us all. Thank you for that. I want to share maybe a bit of a personal experience. So I'm a surfer. And uh, as you well probably know, Indonesia is uh, one of the most incredible places in the world to go surfing. And I've been there. I've been lucky enough to be there a few times. And I'll never forget the first time I was there in a remote part of the Mentawai Islands and uh, speaking with the locals about, you know, life and so forth as you do after a day of surf. And I come to find out that um, it is regular practice in that part of the world, at least it was uh, several years ago when I was there, that the Chinese would show up and they would, and I couldn't even believe the words when the locals told me this, bomb the reefs so that the fish would die and they'd come up and they'd net them all. And, and the locals had no ability to deal with any of this. And they would call the Indonesian government and the Indonesian government would show up several days after the Chinese poachers had left. And this just went on and on. And so I had this false impression that governments gave a shit about the ocean and would fight to stop this kind of uh, horrible massacre and yet, even in a country uh, like Indonesia, 
it apparently is not the case. And so can you help me understand sort of what world governments do as it relates to um, these horrible, massive crimes at sea? Uh, what year were you there in Indonesia when you observed uh, this? Probably eight to 10 years. Well, let's see. The first time I would have gone would have been yeah, maybe 12 years ago. And the last time I was, I was there was probably seven or eight years ago. Well, since then, Indonesia did get a very good uh, fisheries minister, and uh, she um, took action and began to seize uh, Chinese fishing vessels and burn them. We actually chased a very notorious poacher, the Viking, into Indonesian waters, where it was confiscated by the Indonesian government, and she blew it up, you know, in a a demonstration on that. Uh, So, sadly, she's not there anymore, and things have fallen back to where they were. But uh, what we've done with Sea Shepherds over the years is to form partnerships with various governments. It first started in 1999 when we partnered with Ecuador to protect the Galapagos Marine Reserve, and we're still involved there. Uh, And since 2018, we've now set up uh, partnerships with numerous African countries and Latin American countries. Uh, Let me see, Tanzania, Namibia, Cabo Verde, San Tome, Ghana, Gambia, Sierra Leone, Liberia. And uh, we're working with them. We provide the resources and the crew, and they provide the authority. And uh, that's been a very effective campaign. You know, the Asian and European fishing fleets have been plundering African waters for for decades. And, uh, you know, that's why we have piracy in places like Somalia and now emerging in the Gulf of Guinea. These are not real pirates in the sense they they were impoverished fishermen who were driven into poverty by the real pirates. And that is those corporate industrialized fishing fleets. And so we're working with those countries to try and uh, and protect their resources from this uh, invasion. Uh, the Chinese fleets are the worst, followed by the Spanish fleets, and then of course you have the Russians and the Japanese and the Koreans, and and that it's 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 a real problem. About forty percent of all of the fishing that takes place in the world is done illegally, and there's a lot of transshipment to uh, sea. It's hard to really account to uh, where it comes from and where it goes. One thing we do know though is that. Uh, Corporate uh, commercial industrialized fishing is destroying life in our ocean, and uh, it simply is not sustainable. So uh, maybe let's drill into a couple of those things, Captain. Could you sort of maybe pop the hood for me on 40% of the fish that is caught in the world is illegally caught? Yes. There's no way to really trace it. And it's also it's just completely unsustainable. For example... The Antarctic and Patagonia toothfish, which live in the very southern waters, they send these poaching vessels go down there. They put gill nets down two kilometers. Uh, the one we confiscated was 72 kilometers long, weighed 70 tons. And uh, they just take everything that they can. Now, they catch this fish, and then it uh, ends up in Malaysia or Thailand or whatever, and then it's transshipped to Denver or London or Paris. You can't call that a sustainable fishery, <laughs> but uh, how do how does an endangered fish like a, a Patagonia toothfish end up in a restaurant in London or Paris or, or, or Montreal? I mean, it just uh, uh, it, nobody actually bothers to ask that question. How did it get there? <laughs> so there's so much of this that is going on. Uh, also, a good percentage uh, of uh, the fish caught is not used. It's called bycatch. Uh, for instance, for every kilo of shrimp that's taken, 22 kilos of something else is killed and thrown back into the ocean. The other problem we have is that a good percentage of the fish caught isn't even eaten by people. It's fed to animals, to pigs, to chickens, to house cats, to uh, domestic salmon, to fur-bearing animals. 2.8 million tons of fish go just for cat food all the time. Hold on, Captain. Can you say that one more time? 
2.8 million tons of fish go to captive around the world. A year? Every year. Plus, uh, we now live in a world where chickens, chickens are eating more fish than all the world's albatrosses and puffins put together. Pigs are eating more fish than all the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. You know, it's, it's, getting, it's getting to be ridiculous, a world out of balance. Uh, what happens is a large percentage of the fish that's caught is rendered into this stuff called fish meal. And that is turned into pellets for salmon farms, and it's in, put into food for pigs and chickens and other animals on factory farms. And uh, these rendering plants, these uh, fish meal rendering plants are a real problem. Right now in Gambia, for instance, it's the source of a lot of violence. Uh, the Chinese have set up a rendering plant in Gambia, and uh, it's uh, causing incredible pollution. And it's uh, taking so much. The, fish, the local fishermen, the artisanal fishermen, can't catch anything because it's all being taken by the big trawlers. Here's the problem is that every year we put about $70 billion into subsidizing fishing operations around the world. And these massive subsidies are the only reason that corporate industrialized fishing can continue. It can't do it on its own. And when you consider that one of some of these fish costs a some of these fishing vessels cost $100 million to build giant super trawlers. You've got long liners that are setting nets and lines that are over 100 miles long. You've got giant purse saners. You've got gigantic drag trawlers whose nets are so big you could stuff three school buses into them, and they come up absolutely full of fish. Uh, this is a plundering of the oceans, and it's causing incredible uh, diminishment in both uh, biodiversity and interdependence. And as I say all the time, if the ocean dies, we die. We do not live on this planet with a dead ocean. Since 1950, and you can verify this with uh, Scientific America there's, and, and various scientific papers, since 1950, we've lost 40% of our phytoplankton populations in the sea, 40%. Phytoplankton provides 70% of the oxygen we breathe, and it's one of the main sources for sequestering CO2. And yet, it's out of sight and out of mind. Most people don't even think about it. At the 2015 conference on uh, uh, on the environment in, um, in in Paris, I said, look, the solution to climate change is quite simple. Uh, all we have to do is leave the ocean alone. We need, a, we need a moratorium on commercial industrialized fishing for at least 50 years because the ocean is the life support system of the planet. It, for instance, if we look at the, uh, of the Earth as a spaceship, which is what it is, really. We're on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way. Every spaceship has a life support system. That life support system gives us the food we eat and, and the air we breathe and supplies uh, and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system is the ocean. And it's run by a crew, a crew of, of thousands and thousands of species, all interdependent with each other. We humans, we're not crew members. We're, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves. But what we're doing is murdering crew members. And there's so many crew that you can kill before, while well, the machinery begins to fall apart. And the life support system is incapable of supporting life. And that's where we're heading right now. The ocean, the fish in the ocean, the life in the ocean, coral reefs, all this, phytoplankton especially, is far more important where it is than it is for anything that we can take out of it and use for making money, really. Uh, so we really have to learn to live in harmony with all those other species. Why is there a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton? Well, because uh, phytoplankton require uh, nutrients in order to 
thrive, and those are primarily nitrogen and iron. And that's provided by the feces in marine mammals and seabirds. And when you diminish solar populations, you diminish that supply of nutrients. I mean, one blue whale every day uh, defecates three tons into the sea, and that's very, very rich in nutrients. And that floats on the surface and feeds the phytoplankton. In a way, the farmer, uh, the, the, the whales are the farmers of the ocean. Is it and, just sort uh, of the way, I, I have seven hens in our garden, and is it sort of the way the chicken shit is used to fertilize the garden? Yeah, and see, we, we, we don't take any of that into account. We just, the real problem that we have is we have this anthropocentric point of view. We look on the planet as, it's all about us. Everything's here to serve us. We have dominion over everything. Nothing is more important than we are. But the reality is, is that many species are far more important than we are because we, can, we can't exist without them, but they can exist without us. A world without bees, a world without worms, a world without fish, a world without trees is not a world that we can survive in. So we have to take this biocentric point of view and understand that we're here by their grace and that uh, we have to learn to live in harmony and respect all those other species. And why do you think, Captain, that we don't have that mindset, that we have a, you know, to put it bluntly, a, a, a rape and pillage the world and the ocean mindset? Indigenous cultures certainly have that, but uh, since the development of agriculture, we've developed this anthropocentric point of view where it's all about us. I mean, every single religion on the planet puts us as the number one species, all important species, everything is was uh, was created just for us, which is really quite insane when you think about it, considering we haven't been here that long. But uh, that's that's the point of view that uh, humanity has has developed. You know, I got a call a few uh, years ago from Brett Hume, who's a reporter for the Fox Network, and he he said, "I heard that you said that bees, trees, worms, and fish are more important than people." And I said, yeah, I, I said that. He says, how could you say something so outrageous as to say that bees and trees and worms and trees are, are more important than people? I said, well, I, I said it because it's true. They can live without us. We can't live without them. Ecologically, they're far more important than we are. Anyway, he didn't get the point. He thought it was just completely outrageous and uh, that I was uh, an embarrassment to the human race for saying it. <laughs> it sounds like something he might say. You know, it's interesting. I'm reminded, Captain, we had uh, Dr. Caitlin O'Connor on, and she's one of the world's leading authorities on elephants, mm -hmm. and she's written a lot. And she wrote a wonderful book more fairly recently called Animal Rituals, things, things that animals do that can kind of teach us about ourselves. It's a, it's a fantastic book. Anyway, when she came on my podcast, I, I asked her, you know, what, what would you like the average person to know about, about elephants? And she stopped me in her tracks with her answer. Because what she said, Captain, was they're just like us. No, I agree with And yet, that. of course, what we do to them is what we do to all kinds of other animals. And I do agree with that. I spent, uh, I spent six months working with elephants in East Africa way back in 1978. And I was incredibly impressed with just how intelligent they, they were. And uh, they are just like us. And would it be fair to say that um, it's not a stretch to say maybe the same thing about dolphins and whales? Uh, actually, I think they're more intelligent than we are. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, a few years ago, I was having a debate with a Norwegian whaler, and he said to me, but Watson, you say that whales are more intelligent than people. This is a really stupid thing to say. How can you be so stupid? And I said, you know, George, I, I sort of equate intelligence by the ability to live in harmony with the natural world. And by that criteria, whales are far more intelligent than we are. And he says, well, yeah, but by, by that criteria, cockroaches are more intelligent than we are. 
I said, George, you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to tell you. you know? Well, here's the thing. We, we, we humans, we measure intelligence by eye-to-hand coordination, by the ability to make tools. If a blob of protoplasm stepped out of a spaceship, we wouldn't have any doubt at all that it was intelligent. But we don't understand non-manipulative intelligence. The fact is, dolphins and whales have far larger, far more complex brains than we do. And they certainly must do something with those brains. I mean, the convolutions on the neocortex area of dolphins and whales are far more pronounced than ours. And we have 1,700 cubic centimeter brains of orcas, 6,000, sperm whale, largest brain to ever evolved a 9,000 cubic centimeter brain. I mean, these are highly intelligent creatures, but not intelligent in the way that we define what intelligence is. And uh, so that, that's really our, our, our problem. And living here on the Monterey Bay, Captain, uh, you know, I speak with a lot of marine biologists and know a handful of them. Um, I live next door to one. And so we try to be sensitized to, to the ocean. And those comments are all, they sound insane to me. You know, even the one about tools. I mean, one of our most beloved animals around here, of course, is the sea otter. And the sea otter uses tools. That's how they get, that's how they, they tear the, uh, they use a rock or a shell to, to eat breakfast and feed their young. And so even that doesn't really seem to hold water. No, there's a lot of things about the natural world that we simply don't have any comprehension of. Now we're just now discovering that trees can communicate with each other through a very complicated fungal network and, and that. Uh, there are so many things that we just don't understand. We're not that intelligent or as, as intelligent as we'd like to think, think we are. I read an article about this several years ago that na- absolutely knocked me over. Apparently, we now have evidence that uh, a mother tree, so to speak, will grow her root systems to protect her babies and keep other foreign, um, uh, you know, variety of trees away from the little ecosystem around her family. Yeah, I mean, plants are absolutely amazing. I mean, one of the most amazing things about plants is how they have manipulated animals, including us, to do what they want them to do. I mean, we're basically, they use us as a we're sort of a facility for their sex lives, you know. Uh, you know we're spreading the, the pollen around and never, so many animals are, are used for that purpose. And when it comes to a lot of these animals, our agricultural system is where the, the I mean, has uh, the plants have actually worked it so that we're actually, you know, propagating the ones that chose to be propagated by us. We think we're doing it to them, but actually I think uh, we're doing more for them than they're doing for us in that way. But of course, there, there's a real problem there is that uh, we're, that gives an unfair advantage to a lot of other species, which are then put off by the wayside. And again, we dismiss certain species as being unimportant when in fact, we just don't comprehend how just important they are. And so let me ask you the same question that I asked um, Dr. Caitlin. What would you like the world to know about um, some of these extraordinary animals, be it be it whales, be it dolphins, be it any of the extraordinary creatures in the sea? I think what I would like everybody to understand is that we're all interdependent. All of these species are interdependent with each other. And we have to understand the, the three basic laws of ecology, the law of diversity, that the strength of an ecosystem is defined by the diversity within it the law of interdependence, the species within an ecosystem that are interdependent with each other, and the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth, a limit to carrying capacity. And when we steal the carrying capacity from other species, that causes diminishment in both diversity and interdependence. The, I think the one thing I would also like people to get on to understand is just what is this planet? What is this ocean? Uh, 
when people think of the ocean, they think of the sea. But it's more than that. The sea is just one part of the ocean. The ocean is this planet together. It's water. It's water in continuous circulation. Sometimes it's in the in the sea. Sometimes it's in the ice. Sometimes underground. Sometimes in the clouds. And it's sometimes in the cells of every living plant and animal on the planet. The water in our bodies was once in the sea, once in ice, once underground, constantly flowing. It's all connected by that one element, water. And so what is the ocean? We are the ocean, all of us, all living things on this planet. It's a very powerful way to say it. Uh, I'm curious, off the top of my head, I don't remember the exact number, but do you know, Captain, the, the percentage of our body that's water? I believe it's 78%. Yeah, that's sort of in the 70s is what I remember, but that's an incredible statement when you say we are the ocean. It also makes me think about the the plastic crisis and the shocking amount of plastic that's in the ocean. And, and to your point, the shocking amount of plastic that's then in the animals that live in the ocean and the shocking amount of plastic that is in you and I. And so uh, how do you think about that? In 1985, I attended a lecture by Charles, Captain Charles Moore. Uh, he had set up uh, this foundation to, to talk about plastic in the ocean. And I remember for the first 10 years, from 85 to 95, just how frustrating it was that nobody wanted to listen to that. In fact, uh, the president of Greenpeace at the time, uh, he sent me a message saying, why are you wasting your time talking about plastic? That is not a problem. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, finally, finally, the world has stood up and noticed that this is indeed a problem and that plastic has the ability to break down into microplastics, which can invade the cells of almost every living thing. It's a it's a toxic substance. And yet we're still producing it. And uh, it's a it's a design flaw right from the very beginning. I remember walking on the beaches uh, in New Brunswick, Passamaquoddy Bay as a child. There wasn't a single piece of plastic anywhere in the 50s. All of this there has been put there since then, and uh, we got by without it. We don't need it. We got by without it before it happened. I remember instead of these plastic fish boys, there were glass fish boys. People would collect them if they found them on the beaches. Now, we had glass bottles. We had, But, you know, we've now, we continually adapt to diminishment. As things become more diminished, we just accept that diminishment. The very idea in 1965 that you would be buying water in plastic bottles and paying more for that water than the equivalent amount of gasoline would have, it was absurd. It was insane. Nobody would do that. And yet here we are. We've accepted it. We've adapted to that diminishment. And now we produce over a billion plastic bottles a year, and a lot of those end up in landfills or in the ocean. And of course, uh, it kills, I mean, is it even possible to get your arms around how much uh, marine life it kills? kills incredible amounts of fish and seabirds, marine mammals. But, uh, the, and, you know, the worst part of it is the microplastics, which are now invading zooplankton, the bodies of zooplankton, which then, of course, get into our bodies. Every single one of us today has microplastics in our bodies, in our organs. And uh, we have no understanding of what the, uh, what the consequences of that will be. Yes. Now, um, if we go back to your, your ships that are out on missions, I'm very curious. So you spy a boat of poachers, and then what happens? Well, what we do now, we have enforcement uh, people on board, whether it be uh, military or police or fisheries officers. We board them, and we uh, then we do an inspection. And if we find that there's violation, then we arrest them. 
And uh, we're arresting quite a few of them, actually, you know, not having the proper papers, uh, taking species that they're not supposed to take. Um, there's a lot of illegal activities. A good example, in 2011, I found a, a bluefin tuna operation off the coast of Libya. And as I approached it, I, I, I asked for the fisheries inspector, the EU fisheries inspector. Some guy gets on there and identifies himself as the EU fisheries inspector. I said, what's your, uh, what's your license number? I don't need no license number, he said. I said, really? Well, who do you report to? Anyway, I said, you guys are illegal. I'm going to inspect your nets. And so we jumped, we, our divers went into this giant net and we found 800 uh, bluefin uh, tuna in there. Now, they were caught two days after the season ended, and a lot of them were the wrong size. And they were haul what they do is they haul them live back to Malta, then they feed them and fatten them up for the Japanese market. So once we established that it was illegal, we cut the nets and released them. So it was magnificent watching 800 of these fish go like racehorses out of that net. And um, then a year later, I, I was we were in Scotland and my ship was arrested by the uh, British courts. And I was charged with destruction of property because they had put a civil complaint against me. So I put a bond on the ship and we went to court and uh, we won. Uh, what I was really surprised with was that... Uh, I said to them, you know, these guys are poachers. Uh, why, uh, how come we're being charged? And he said, well, it doesn't matter what they were. That, this is their private property. You damaged their property. So it doesn't, I said, well, so if you damage a bank robber's car, then you could be charged with damaging their car. <laughs> they said, yes. So anyway, we went to court and, we, and we, we were acquitted. Now, the lawyers for the fishing company said, well, we'll just throw money at Sea Shepherd until we destroy them. And they took us to the Court of Appeals, and they won. Then we went to the Supreme Court. And we won. And then they had to pay us a million and a half pounds for, uh, in damages. So, you know, we fight a lot of these things. We go from the field to the courtrooms. And so far, we've won all our court cases. Wow. And, you know, I don't know if this is a, is a testy topic. And feel free to nudge me under the table. I, I don't want to go anywhere you don't want to go. But um, ask any question you like. These things, uh, I can't imagine that from time to time there isn't some violence, that these poachers are armed. Oh, yeah, we get shot at, uh, Molotov cocktails thrown at us, we're, ships are rammed and that. Uh, the policy that I put to, it was Sea Shepherd in 1977 when I found it, it was what I call aggressive nonviolence. Uh, we're going to be aggressive, but we're not going to hurt anybody, and uh, we've not uh, killed or injured anybody uh, in 42 years, and we've not sustained any injuries ourselves. But like I said, we've been shot at. Our drones have been shot down. We've had Molotov cocktails thrown on board our vessels on that. But we have to take a lot of precautions. So, for instance, my vessels operating in Mexico right now are equipped with netting to deflect the Molotov cocktails. Uh, we have water uh, cannons to, uh, you know, to dissuade them from approaching too close. And the crew are given body armor and Kevlar helmets. So we do take measures to protect the crew from that kind of violence. We are de we know we're dealing with. Uh, poachers who are criminals. And uh, Sea Shepherd is not a protest organization. We intervene against criminal activities. About 12 years ago, I was invited by the FBI to give a lecture at uh, Quantico on what we do. And uh, at the end of the lecture, one of the FBI agents says, well, Sea Shepherd's walking a pretty fine line when it comes to the law. And I said, yes, but does it really matter how fine the line is as long as you don't actually cross the line? And they couldn't really disagree with us. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I'm curious. Um, how do you avoid any of your crew getting killed? How do you avoid killing some of the poachers? I mean, I got to believe some of these things escalate pretty quickly. Well, we, uh, we take a lot of those precautions. Uh, one uh, Mexican fisherman was killed in the last day of 
2020 because he uh, and another fisherman, uh, first of all, they started throwing Molotov cocktails at us and our protocol is, okay, as soon as that happens, get out of there as quickly as can as we can. And so our vessel, uh, the, it was a parley mullet actually, uh, sped out of there as fast as we can, pursued by these poachers. And then uh, the one guy just literally was intimidating us and uh, ran right into us. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, the boat, their boat was uh, thrown out of the water and one of them was killed, the other one was injured. But that wasn't anything that we did. It was, it was uh, their, their actions completely. And, uh, of course, now they're saying that we, we deliberately did it, but uh, we film everything, so we're not too concerned about that. Over the years, you know, I've always said that the camera is the most powerful weapon ever invented. It's also the best form of self, uh, self-defense, as we've seen in so many cases. Back in 2002, we stopped a, a shark binning operation in Guatemala, and I did it at the request of the Guatemalan government. And uh, a week later, when we went to Costa Rica, it happened to be a Costa Rican vessel. A week later, we went to Costa Rica. The Costa Ricans charged me with eight counts of attempted homicide because the fishermen said I tried to kill them. And so we went into court and we showed the film footage because we were, we were filming for Rob Stewart's uh, Sharkwater film at the time. And they viewed the film, and it was obvious that we, that, you know, what was going on, and the charges against me were dismissed. So uh, a week later, a new prosecutor was appointed and came after me, and now I was charged with eight counts of uh, criminal assault. So again, we went back into the courtroom, and again, we showed the footage, and again, the charges were dismissed, and I was given clearance to leave uh, the country. But 10 years later, when I was uh, entering Germany, I was arrested on a Costa Rican warrant. Uh, On this time, they had charged me with shipwreck endangerment from the same incident. And uh, so what happened there is that... uh, in 2018, there was a change of government in Costa Rica, and the charges were dismissed, which shows you that it was political. If it hadn't been judicial, they couldn't have dismissed it on a change of government. But the reason that happened is that the Japanese government had gone to the Costa Rican government because they were trying to stop what we were doing in the Southern Ocean, and they asked for a favor, and that favor was to, uh, you know, was to lay charges against us on that particular incident. And uh, but it all turned out well, so the charge uh, the charges were dismissed. This may be an inappropriate question, and it may reveal uh, something that uh, of my character. But there's part of me that says, "Don't you want to pull up on these guys and just blow the ship to smithereens?" I mean, isn't there part of you that just wants to make them pay? Well, uh, it's it, you know, uh, the strategy of aggressive nonviolence is a is a strategic and a, a, t- a tactical one. Uh, it op- we operate within the bounds of the boundaries of the law and the boundaries of practicality. And it simply isn't legal or practical to go and do those kind of things. So, uh, so we have that we have that uh, that approach, and and I think it's worked quite well for us, and uh, we intend to to keep it. Uh, you know, governments governments have a monopoly on violence, and therefore, you know, non government organizations cannot be violent. Uh, it basically is suicidal to do that. So we've had to develop uh, this way of intervening in a nonviolent but aggressive manner. It's interesting. Yeah, I haven't been in a fight since I was probably 11 years old, outside of a gym anyway. Um, and so uh, I, I don't want to give you a false impression, but um, that stance of aggressive nonviolence, obviously you were one of the founders of Greenpeace. And again, if you don't want to talk about this, it's okay. And then you clearly had a falling out. And it seems to me, based on my understanding of your life, but I'd love to hear from you, that part of the bifurcation there was 
the level of, let's call it aggression you wanted to have, nonviolent as it is, was different than them. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious sort of what caused that separation, if, if, if you're comfortable talking about it. Well, actually, the separation had very little to do with that. It was purely uh, political. Uh, in 1977, there was a basically a power struggle when Bob Hunter, who was the you know the first founding president of Greenpeace, he stepped down and was replaced by Patrick Moore. Patrick Moore, by the way, now today works for a lot of corporations uh, uh, as a PR guy. <laughs> but uh, you know, he saw me as a threat, and um, I led a campaign to protect seals off of Labrador in 1977. And uh, one instant, I walked up to a sealer and. Uh, Literally, I pulled the club out of his hand, threw it in the water, picked up the seal, and rescued it. And that was the excuse that Patrick Moore used to say that I uh, was violent. He accused me of violently stealing the man's property. And uh, that, and, and they voted to vote me off the board. I wasn't actually kicked out of Greenpeace, but I decided that, you know, I really wasn't a protester. And Greenpeace is a protest organization. And it's a very submissive thing to do, you know, like, please, please, please don't kill the whales. And then you just take pictures and hang banners. So I decided to set up Sea Shepherd as a, as an interventionist group. And that's the big difference between Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd. But the interesting thing about it is that all of those uh, guys who voted me off the board, except with the exception of Patrick Moore and a couple others, all joined Sea Shepherd later, including Bob Hunter and Rod Marining, David Garrick. They were all crew members on my ships uh, after that. So we really, when people say, uh, why did you leave Greenpeace? I always say, well, we didn't actually. We're still, we still are the same people. The people who run Greenpeace today, first of all, most of them weren't even born then, but uh, they're not the same people. Fascinating. And, you know, you've been called a lot of negative things by a lot of people and you've gotten into, uh, shall we call it trouble with a lot of governments. Uh, people call you an eco-terrorist and things along those lines. You know, I'm curious how you think about people who call you that and when the media sort of jumps on that bandwagon and, and frames you as such. It doesn't really bother me. I'm not an eco-terrorist. I've never worked for Monsanto and, uh, or Exxon. Uh, so, you know, those are what I would consider eco-terrorists. Uh, we operate, like I said, within the boundaries of the law. And uh, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not really concerned about people... Uh, you know, people's criticism. You know, back in 1975, when I was with Greenpeace, uh, we uh, came up with this idea to, to defend whales. And we were reading a lot of Gandhi at the time. And we thought, well, this is the way to do it. Put our cells between the whale and the harpoon. And Bob Hunter and I found ourselves in a small little boat in front of a Soviet harpoon vessel that was bearing down at us at a high speed. And in front of us were eight sperm whales fleeing for their life. And every time the uh, harpooner tried to get a shot, I would maneuver the boat to block that harpoon. And, and this worked for about 20 minutes until the captain on the Russian boat came running down the catwalk, screamed into the ear of the harpooner, looked down on us, smiled and brought his finger across his neck like that. And that's when I realized Gandhi wasn't going to work for us that day. And a few moments later, there was an incredible explosion. This harpoon, explosive harpoon, flew over her head, slammed into the backside of one of the whales. She screamed, rolled on her side, blood everywhere, and suddenly the largest whale in the pod struck the water with his tail and dove. And he dove right underneath of us and threw himself straight at the bow of the uh, of the Soviet vessel. But they were waiting for him with an unattached harpoon, and the harpooner nonchalantly just pulled the uh, trigger and hit him at point-blank range. And he fell back in the water, screaming in agony, rolling around, blood everywhere, and that is when I caught his eye. 
And he looked at me and dove. And now I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming at me really fast. And he came up and out of the water at an angle, so the next move was to fall forward on top of us. And as his head rose out of the water, and I looked into an eye, an eye the size of my fist, I saw something there that changed my life forever. And that was understanding. That whale understood what we were trying to do. Because I could see the effort that he made to pull himself back, and he began to slide back into the sea, and he died. Could have killed us. Chose not to do so. Do you believe that that whale understood who the good guys were and the bad guys were in that moment when your eye uh, met her? Is that what you said? It was a female? No, no, this was a male. This, this was the male. Sorry. So he, yeah. he knew who you were. You think you had that connection eye to eye? I felt it. I felt that he understood it. But more importantly, I saw the effort he actually made to pull himself back to stop coming forward to, to, you know, to crush us. So I saw that. But I also saw something else, and that was pity. Uh, I just felt this overwhelming sense of pity, not for himself, but for us, that we could take life so mercilessly, so thoughtlessly. And I said to myself, why are they killing these whales? And they didn't eat the whale meat. They killed sperm whales for sperm oil, spermaceti oil, which is highly prized for high heat-resistant lubricant for machinery. And one of the things it was most prized for was for the construction and maintenance of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said, here we are destroying this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, self-aware, sentient being for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it struck me. We are insane. We're ecologically insane. And as I sat down in the middle of that Russian fleet and the sun was going down, I said to myself, I don't do this for people. I do this for them. That's who I represent. Ten years later, we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet, shut down their whale processing plant, and shut them down for 17 years. A former colleague from Greenpeace came to me and he says, just want to let you know that what you did in Iceland was reprehensible, unforgivable, and you're an embarrassment to this movement. And I said, so? <laughs> and he said, well, I think you, sh you should be concerned about what people think about you. I said, John, John I I, we didn't sink those whaling ships for you. Didn't sink it for Greenpeace. We sank them for the whales. Find me a whale anywhere that disagreed with what we did that day. And I promise you, we, we won't do it again. Incredible. Now, on a, on a personal basis, you know, I'm somebody who's troubled by much of the insanity in the world. And I try to be a good person. I try to make a difference where I can. But to be radically transparent with you, Captain, sometimes the overwhelming cruelty and insanity of humanity is overwhelming to me. And I can get to a place, I remember, if I could share this story with you, sort of during the worst days of the pandemic here in the United States, the Wall Street Journal ran a story with Bill Gates, about Bill Gates. And in it, you could just feel, and I forget exactly what he said, Captain, but you could just feel his pain and how he had worked for 10 years to try to avoid exactly what was now happening and how we had plans in place, and we didn't execute them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they showed this picture of him kind of with his head down. And I remember, I remember crying reading it, thinking, if one of the world's richest and most powerful men who worked so hard to stop exactly this and warned us about it, et cetera, et cetera, couldn't make a difference, then what fucking difference can I make on any social or political issue that I think is insane? And so with that said, Captain, I'm curious how you keep going in the face of this stupidity, this insanity, this pure evil, this murder. How, how do you keep going? 
I actually call it the ecological insanity of humanity. Yes, I agree with you, but uh, I do believe that throughout history, the only thing that's ever made a difference is the passion, the courage, and the imagination of individuals. Uh, politicians don't change the world, individuals do. Uh, Abraham Lincoln didn't end slavery. That was ended by Wilberforce and Douglas and all of those abolitionists. Uh, women didn't get the vote in the United States because of Woodrow Wilson. He was a guy who was opposed them. He just signed the, uh, the the amendment. But it was a, it was the suffering, the sacrifice, and uh, of all of those women who who fought for that. Because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Because of David Wingate. Uh, a, a biologist in Bermuda. We still have the Bermuda storm petrel. Uh, because of uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, millions of children around the world are are mobilizing on, on climate change. Individuals do make a difference. And we all have the power to change the world. And I think sometimes we have to look for the impossible answers to impossible problems. And a good example, 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would be president of South, A- South Africa was in- unthinkable yeah, and impossible, and yet it became possible. I believe impossible uh, solutions are there to be found. And the key to finding them is courage, imagination, and passion. Courage, imagination, and passion. And you're clearly a human being. You're clearly a big-hearted human being. I have moments where I feel crushed. I feel defeated by the stupidity and the death and the evil. And so I'm curious, in, a, in those moments where um, sort of what you're up against might feel overwhelming, how do you summon the courage, imagination, and passion in, in those moments where it feels really bad? Again, I think you have to focus on, on the present. In 1979, I hunted down a pirate whaler called the Sierra. I found it off the coast of Portugal, 200 miles off the coast. And my objective was to end the career of that vessel. I couldn't take action against it at sea. The sea was too rough. So I chased it into a Portuguese port. And it was out, it was drifting in the harbor. And I pulled up alongside. And I said to my crew, there are 20 of us on board. I said, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to ram that vessel. I'm going to disable it. I'm going to end its career. I can't say you're not going to be injured, but I can sure as hell guarantee you're all going to be arrested if you come with me. And uh, so you got 10 minutes, pack your bags if you don't want to be involved and get off the ship. 10 minutes later, 17 of the 20 uh, were on the dock. Myself and two engineers were on board. Fortunately, I had two engineers. We pulled away, went straight towards the Sierra. I hit it across the bow to damage the harpoon to give them a warning blow. I came around the stern at 360 degrees and came in at full speed to hit them in midships. And the captain was actually shooting at me with a rifle at the time. Uh, and we hit them. We split them open to the water line. It basically ended its career. And uh, I was pursued by the Portuguese Navy. And uh, I made the mistake of actually going back with the Navy and you know, uh, cooperating with them, and uh, brought back to the port. And I was brought before the port captain, and he charged me with gross criminal negligence. I said, Captain, there wasn't anything negligent about what we did. I hit that ship exactly where I intended to hit it. It wasn't negligent. And he looked at me, and he said, he laughed, and he said, well, yeah, that's true. But the other problem is I don't know who owns that ship. And until I find out who owns that ship, uh, you're free to go. So I walked out the door, and one of my crew members there who had left it, he said, well, if I knew you were going to get away with it, I would have been there too. And so what I said is sometimes you got to do these things knowing there is no way to get away with it. There's no 
way, you got to jump into the fire and uh, find a way to jump out, but you got to take that risk if you're going to make a difference. Uh, things aren't don't come easy. You have to you have to be willing to take that risk. That's where courage comes becomes uh, enters into the equation. There's no courage in the absence of risk. No. And you're a man who has spent best I can tell, Captain, the better part of your adult life taking very significant personal risk, whether it's at sea or, I mean, you have um, gotten into battles, so to speak, with uh, some of the biggest governments in the world. Yep. I mean, the Japanese don't love you, as best I can tell. No, absolutely not. But what we did, we, 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 we won. We drove them out of the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. We cost them $150 million in damages, and we ended their killing of whales, and we saved 6,500 whales. So I feel really, really good about that. Um, and when I began, whaling was a, a big problem. Now it's been pretty much been reduced by 95%. When we began, Australia, Chile, Spain, South Africa, Brazil, Chile, they were all whaling nations. They're no longer whaling nations. And Australia today is one of the leading anti-whaling nations. And I believe that eventually Japan will come around and become a whale-protecting nation instead of a whale-killing nation. Right now, we've, we've knocked them down to number two. Norway is the biggest whaling nation, followed by Japan, followed by, by Denmark. Iceland, unofficially, they haven't killed any whales for the last three years. But I... I said back in the 70s that uh, if I have one lifelong ambition, it's the complete eradication of the perversion of whaling. And I think what's almost been achieved. Wow. That's incredible. I'm also curious, and please excuse my ignorance, I'm not as learned on any of these topics, of course, as you are. The Japanese became famous for murdering uh, dolphins. Does that still take place? It does. We uh, were the first to expose that in uh, twenty in two thousand and three, uh, and we set up our uh, Cove Guardian program where we had volunteers go over there. But then Japan countered by, if you're with Sea Shepherd, you're not allowed into Japan. Simple as that. So uh, I, I could only. Were you the, the first organization to uh, distribute the videos of what was actually going on there? Yes, in 2003. And uh, we started monitoring it. And then the problem is that if I sent a crew member over, if they went back, they were, were not allowed. They were barred from re-entry into Japan, even though they didn't do anything illegal. So, uh, But fortunately, uh, Rick O'Berry's group, uh, uh, the Dolphin Project, is carrying on doing that, documenting what's going on, making sure it's not out, out of sight and, and out of mind. But... Uh, you know, they're also we're, we're right now trying to save ten thousand dolphins a year that are being killed by by the French trawling fleet. Seventeen hundred dolphins or pilot whales that are killed in the Faroe Islands just for for sport, uh, and the inc- thousands and thousands of dolphins and whales that are killed as bycatch in uh, in industrialized fishing operations. So these are all things that we're we're opposing. There's so many threats uh, in addition to what you already mentioned, the plastic pollution. Thank you for that. Um, Earlier, you said that you think we need a 50-year moratorium on industrial or uh, uh, kind of major fishing. You know, I I can imagine many people saying, well, how are we going to feed the world, Captain? And so if if we were to do that, what's your sense of what would happen to the food supply? You know, when we did the, the film Seaspiracy, uh, we were criticized and saying, you know, what do you expect people to, uh, you know, people depend on fish? Well, the people who depend on fish, artisanal uh, fishing communities around the world, their biggest threat to their survival are corporate industrialized fishing operations that are plundering their waters, taking their fish away from them. 
you know, there's one thing to go out and catch a fish in a small boat or a canoe or whatever. There's another thing to have a, a super trawler out there just hauling in everything that's uh, that's alive. So uh, I think that uh, there's no need to have industrialized, commercialized fishing. There's no need to be destroying the ocean because if we continue doing this, there won't be any fishing industry uh, by the middle of this century. And uh, so we have to keep that in mind. You know, I think we can learn from the Polynesians many, many, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Polynesian culture had this thing called kapu, that uh, a bay, for instance, in Bora Bora, Hanama Bay, say in Hawaii, that was declared kapu, no fishing. Anybody caught fishing for 20 years in that bay, it was a death penalty. And people say, oh, that's a little extreme for fishing, but not from their point of view. The politicians knew that if the fish disappeared, they would die. You know, they had to have those conservation measures, and they were very strict. There are no kapu areas anywhere in the world today. There's no place for the fish to recover from the onslaught of our greed. I mean, Rayathon has a fish finder, and the motto of that device is called, the fish can run, but they can't hide. And that's the problem. There's no place for the fish to have sanctuary. And people will say, well, we have marine reserves. We have sanctuaries. Yes, and that's where the poachers go. 300,000 sharks a year taken out of the Galapagos Marine Reserve illegally because the poachers know that that's where they can find fish. And so what we have is a lack of uh, enforcement due to the lack of political and economic will on the part of many nations around the world. Slowly, slowly, that's coming around. Uh, the United States Navy, for instance, actually has a class on sea sh- what Sea Shepherd does. And uh, the Pentagon has said that this is becoming a matter of national security. The fact that uh, you know overfishing can lead to the kind of, uh, you know, problems that they, they don't want to deal with, which is, you know, riots, mobs, wars, and all sorts of things can come from that. Right now, we have uh, the plundering of these waters in, of African waters by primarily the Chinese and the Spanish fleets. And uh, this is a real problem. And uh, it, nobody really seems to care about it. And it's interesting that uh, the, the African nations, they certainly understand this. Uh, Liberia gave us uh, their highest military decoration for our interventions in their waters. So we are appreciated by those countries that do see the need uh, for this kind of intervention. I'm curious um, if you have an opinion at all on what's transpired here in the Monterey Bay since it was declared a marine sanctuary. Are, are you familiar with it at all? Well, I am. Uh, we don't get too much involved in U.S. issues because uh, the United States does have a fairly uh, you know, good response, a conservation response in protecting uh, uh, ecosystems within the U.S. territory. Uh, you know, we monitor that, but we have there usually is, there's there's not that many problems. Because what I hear, you know, I, I'm friends with some local fishermen and fishmongers here. A buddy of mine goes out every morning and you know comes back with a very little boat. You'll know by himself. Um, and what I'm told by them, not not the regulators and politicians, is that since it's become more strict over time, they actually appreciate it that the seasons are very well managed, the populations are well managed, it's incredibly well controlled, uh, the standards are incredibly high. And at first, many of uh, the people in that industry here were very concerned that their livelihoods would be taken from them and so forth and so on. And at least now, and of course, I'm not an expert far from it, what I hear from people kind of around town and a few that I know is that they tell me 
that in the Monterey Bay, we do a very good job of trying to manage the two. Their seasons are there. The fishing happens, but it's highly controlled. It's not overfished. The seasons are short, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Does that sound plus or minus right to you, or am I hearing bullshit? I think that conservation efforts in the U.S. have been pretty good. I remember I was up in Alaska one time, and uh, there was these guys fishing out there and uh, in a fjord, a misty fjord, fjord near Ketchikan, well, 50 miles from Ketchikan. And uh, I said to them, I said, you guys have a license? Ah, we don't need no sticking license <laughs> and everything like that. And uh, well, it was about a half hour later, Alaska Fishing Game landed their plane right beside them and said, where's your license? And they got, and they got busted. So, I mean, even though they were 50 miles from nowhere, they, they, you know, they were busted. So, I mean, they're the enforcement's there, even in places like Florida, I've seen really adequate enforcement on, on illegal fishing and that. So, uh, yeah, I don't see the U S waters as a, as a problem. And would the same be plus or minus true for Canada? Now Canada is a disaster. <laughs> oh fuck. Really? Why is yeah. that? Uh, because uh, the, the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans is just, um, I, I call it the most incompetent government body in the country there. They pretty much do what the industry wants. I mean, the West Coast fishing industry in British Columbia is pretty much owned run by one man, Jimmy Pattison. And what Jimmy Pattison wants, Jimmy Pattison gets. So you're finding like gross violations of, uh, of the quotas on, on herring, for, for example. The other problem is fish farms, which are illegal in Alaska. But fish farms are spreading viruses to uh, indigenous fish populations from an invasive species, the Atlantic salmon, which really has no business in Pacific waters. And on top of that, it's uh, and the transmission of uh, zoonomic transmission of viruses is also having the, the problem with uh, feces uh, pollution and the chemical and antibiotics that are used in that intensive industry are getting into the ecosystem. It's, it's a very destructive thing. The other thing about fish farming is it takes about 75 fish copper in the ocean to raise one salmon on a, a salmon farm. So it's actually putting even more pressure on, on, on wild fish populations. And so do you have to run missions in Canada? Oh, we, we shut down 17 fish farms in British Columbia over the last two years. Wow. Incredible. We're working with uh, Dr. Alexandra Morton and her work on uh, viruses and also with First Nations who have been very much opposed to these uh, establishment of these fish farms on their traditional territory. Yes. Now, I'm curious, what um, would you like the average consumer who eats fish to know? If I say to you, hey, listen, I, I, I understand you're a vegetarian. Is that correct, Captain? Yes, all our ships are vegan ships, actually, for the last uh, 40 years. <laughs> wow. Um, but I'm somebody who eats fish. And so if I wanted to be a good person and still eat fish, can I do that? I would say there's very few species that are, you know, Alaska wild salmon. Uh, farm-raised oysters, maybe, uh, but uh, anchovies from Peru, maybe. But, you know, generally, uh, our, our position is uh, just to abstain from, uh, from the eating, eating the fish. As, uh, that's our solution. Uh, I, I don't expect everybody to do that, especially artisanal communities, especially indigenous communities and that. But I don't think that people should be going into a restaurant and eating a fish that was caught a half a planet away and transported by plane. And then you can't even uh, decide, you can't even prove that it was caught, caught legally or not. But if I go to a restaurant here in Santa Cruz that features, you know, a catch from the Monterey Bay, is that less um, damaging? I think that the restaurants can have a, a chain of, uh, uh, you know, 
a source. Uh, did where was this fish caught? Was it caught locally? Who was it caught by? I think that that would be accepted because we do have you know one of the wonderful things living where we live is uh, it's sort of one of the places that's been a champion of this quote unquote farm to table movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the restaurants around here, you know, their menu changes all the time based on what's fresh. And obviously a lot of that is vegetables and, but local farmers and, and obviously local fishing groups and so forth. But the right answer is no fish. And if you have to eat it, eat something that was caught local and you know, the source, is that the advice? Yes. I, I would think that would be best. Uh, you know, we just have to put an end to the corporate industrialized heavy gear fishing operations. And so uh, don't eat at Long John Silver's or any of these douchebag places, right? Don't go to McDonald's and have a fish filet or whatever the fuck they call that stuff. Or red lobster or things like, yeah, hops. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like I say to people, you know, you eat a red lobster or the, my other favorite is um, the Olive Garden. People go to the Olive Garden and think they had Italian food. Like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> now, yes. We are living at an interesting time where I think you have much to teach us. Obviously, in the wake of George Floyd, there seems to be a bit of an awakening happening. The Bob Dylan, the times are changing maybe again, hopefully. And so if, if I'm a person who wants to emulate some of your life and take a stand against things that I believe are wrong and support causes that I think are right, whether it's justice for black and brown Americans or, or whatever it would happen to be. Now it's my personality. You could probably tell I'm not so much about like, Oh yes, let's have a, a happy horse shit protest and then nothing happens. So I wanted to sort of take a more uh, aggressive, nonviolent approach to driving some of this change. What advice would you give to people who, who want to take that approach to, to making positive change happen? I think when people find something that they're passionate about, it doesn't matter what the cause is, that as long as they're able to harness their passion to both courage and imagination, as I mentioned, they can make a difference. You know, the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity. The strength of any movement is in diversity. And whether that approach can be education, litigation, legislation, direct action, intervention, whatever, it's about using your skills and your ability to make this a better world. And uh, you can do that as a lawyer. You can do that as a writer. You can do that as a, you know, as a teacher. There's so many things. Uh, do what you do best, really, what you're happy with. Find yourself the perfect job. And what is the perfect job? That's a job you do seven days a week, every day of the year, for no money, if you have to, and never retire from. That's the perfect job. <laughs> and you'll you find once you embrace that, that it seems to come together and you're actually able to make a living doing what you're passionate about. Yes. And I'm also, I also wonder, uh, I'm somebody who, when I dig my uh, heels in about something that I think is wrong, I, I go after it. it. It's in my nature. I can't stop. I'm currently in several battles for justice right now. And I get criticized often by people in my life, sometimes by people in, in the broader world, now that I'm an author and a podcaster, for being too aggressive. Because I'll do a social media post and I'll say, fuck you, Gavin Newsom. You've done nothing on the fires and we're heading into fire season again. You piece of shit. Where was the plan? Why didn't you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I will get very aggressive with people about that. As a matter of fact, LinkedIn just took down one of my posts about uh, the incompetence and, and I think criminal behavior of Gavin Newsom. And so what advice would you give to people who, like me, who are willing to be aggressive, to be public 
to shine a light on things that sometimes, you know, everybody wants to get along and be so nice. And, and, and can we just talk to you? You know, Captain, couldn't you just, couldn't you just do a big kumbaya with some of these governments? Why do you have to get out there and mix it up and smash into, bo- like, there's a whole, you know, and I live in a community that is very much oriented to this, uh, what I would call toxic, passive behavior. And so what advice would you give me? And, and, and how do you deal with your critics who, who say that about you? I think we just have to be strategic about our aggressive <laughs> aggressiveness. Uh, as long as you're not hurting anybody, you can't be too aggressive. But as sometimes you have to, you know, know when to uh, when to be more aggressive, when to be less aggressive. I guess depending on on the situation. I, I'm not really concerned about critics. I think that my uh, my role as a conservationist is really to piss people off. I mean, you got to make people think. You got to got to rock the boat. Got to sink a few occasionally. But uh, the thing is, you've got to you know you've got to make waves. And uh, to, to get people to sit up and, and notice. So uh, that, that really depends on people's individual. What do you want to achieve and what's the best strategy to achieve it? And uh, it certainly doesn't do any harm to be outspoken and to, uh, to get your point across, no matter how aggressively you have to do that, as long as you don't go over the line, which is actually physically hurt somebody. No, I'm not going to do that at all. And I would never advocate it. I mean, to your point, some of our greatest heroes, you mentioned Nelson Mandela. I have a, a New York Times Magazine front cover framed of him in my home because of the incredible inspiration he is. So, uh, and, and violence just gets more violent. There's nothing about violence that makes any sense. So I, I deeply understand that. However, um, most people are not willing to go to the level of aggressive that you have gone to. You know, uh, back in 1985, I had a Tibetan Buddhist monk come to my ship in Seattle, and he gave me a little uh, statuette. It was a very colorful, horse-headed, dragon-looking thing. I, it was, I, I put it. He said, "Could you put it up on your mast for protection?" And I did. I mean, I didn't know what it was and anything. But in 1989, I had the opportunity to meet with, have lunch with uh, the Dalai Lama, and I showed him a picture of this, and I found out that he had sent it to us, and I, I, I was amazed. But I, I said, well, what is it? And he says, it's called uh, Hayagriva. And I said, well, what is that? Well, it's a symbol for the divine aspect of the wrath of the Buddha. And I said, well, what does that mean? He smiled and he said, well, sometimes when uh, people cannot see enlightenment, scare the hell out of them until they do. So he understood what our approach was. He understood aggressive nonviolence, which is what we were doing. You know, we, we scare a lot of our opposition, but we don't hurt them. <laughs> Very good. Captain, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been an incredible discussion. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, that people are concerned about right now, of course, is uh, the COVID-19 and the viruses and everything. And uh, my concerns about that, if anybody ever has an opportunity to read Lori Garrett's book on the coming plague, which was written in 1995, she predicted all of this. And uh, my concern is that uh, this is a, a harbinger of worse things to come. Because when you diminish ecosystems and you diminish species, you create a situation for more zoonomic transmission of viruses. These viruses uh, have to go somewhere. And 8 billion of us were pretty attractive hosts. And also you have, coupled with that, the emerging pathogens from melting permafrost in the high Arctic. Uh, So the future, we're going to have to deal with more and more of this. We have to understand the nature of viruses. We need them. Viruses are extremely important. Life on this planet wouldn't be possible with them. There's hundreds of millions of viruses. Every plant and animal has viruses associated with them. And without them, we couldn't survive. Uh, 
But when we diminish a species, viruses which are in species which are relatively close to us, bats or birds or, or even or pigs, apes certainly, they'll jump. They'll jump to us. And, uh, you know, the virus, it's not in the interest of the virus to kill. I mean, I'm talking to them like they're a conscious entity, but they're not, but they are a natural entity. But the virus, it's not in their interest to kill the host, but to attain a state of peaceful coexistence or where they can develop, work with each other, a lot of the hosts will die. And that's the problem that we're facing right now. So vaccinations are a Band-Aid, but not the solution. The solution has to be the preservation of entire ecosystems and the preservations of other species, the preservation of the interdependence of all species, and the understanding that we don't live here alone, that we live with them, and uh, we have to cooperate with all these other species for our own survival. So really, this entire movement, this entire conservation movement, it isn't about saving the planet. It's about saving us from ourselves. You know, when you take a look at every major extinction event in the history of this planet, there's been five prior to the one we're in now called the Anthropocene, called the Sixth Major Extinction. What did they all have in common? Well, first of all, they all were caused by uh, greenhouse gas emissions <laughs> rising for various reasons. This is the first one actually caused by a species. But well, the other thing they had in common was uh, 18 to 20 million years for a full recovery. And so 18 to 20 million years from now, life on this planet will still be here. It'll be abundant. It'll be a beautiful place. We just won't be here. So this is really about saving ourselves and all those other species that share the planet with us. And we really have to learn to to understand that we're all crew members on space on spaceship Earth or spaceship ocean, as I call it, and uh, have to work together. Thank you for that. And uh, if we could, there's a couple things you said there I, I want to make sure I understand. Are you suggesting, Captain, that the existence of the coronavirus is a direct result of uh, destruction of ecosystems around bats? Oh, absolutely. And not only that, it's also a result of uh, intensive concentration of, uh, like, for instance, they talk about the wet markets. Forget about the wet markets. They're rather minor compared to factory farms. You know, every year we exterminate tens of millions of animals on factory farms because that's to keep those viruses in check. Killed 17 million mink in the last year alone in Europe uh, because they got, they'd had coronavirus. But there's so many other viruses that they're trying to keep in check through mass extermination. Did you say we killed 17 million mink in, in Europe? Yeah, in the last year, 17 million mink. And some were killed in North America. I haven't got the figures from North America, but 17 million. In order to achieve what? To uh, destroy the emerging coronavirus within the mink populations. Why hasn't that been reported? I, this is the first time I've heard this. It's been in the news. I think you can Google it. You can certainly find it for sure. So, but this this is a problem is that, uh, you know, Lori Garrett in her book, she predicted all of this. For instance, we for a while we ignored AIDS. For a while we ignored Ebola. We certainly ignored Hantavirus, West Nile virus, MERS and SARS. And now we have this. And it's going to, there's going to be worse to come unless we actually address this in a, aggressively, and that means uh, taking measures to protect uh, endangered ecosystems and that. You cannot, dis you cannot diminish an ecosystem without causing, without causing problems. And every species you remove affects another species that are involved. And uh, ultimately, we're going to be affected uh, in that way. And then the other thing you, you sort of touched on, uh, extinction. Do you think we're living through a, a, a new extinction now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, even... 
uh, scientists call it the Anthropocene or the, the sixth major extinction event, uh, we'll lose more uh, plants and animals between, say, the year 2000 and uh, the year 2065 than we've lost in the last 65 million years. So that is a major major extinction event uh, a lot of these uh, species disappear and we don't even notice them it's only when you know a, a well-known species like a, uh, you know a tiger species or whatever goes extinct that we, we set up and notice but there's you know everything from spiders to ants to lichens to oh, so many species corals and that uh, we just uh, are oblivious to the fact that they've been removed and Every time you remove one, you're pretty much removing an essential engineer from the uh, life support system of the planet. And so do you have a sense for, you know, uh, as we keep doing this, sooner or later, it's going to get to us? Well, yeah. Well, it's getting to us right now, actually, uh, with these emerging uh, viruses and ecosystem collapses. Uh, so uh, nature will take care of the problem. I mean, we either help save ourselves or nature will take care of us. Uh, so... What's the future going to be? Uh, I do know one thing is that uh, there is a limit to resources, that fossil fuels are not going to last for more than another century at, at the most. And uh, imagine this planet without fossil fuels. Imagine how humanity is going to survive. Uh, there's very few alternatives. I mean, you know, you, you might look at, say, nuclear, for example. Well, nuclear is a very high carbon intensive uh, industry. It takes uh, to get one ounce of, pitch, of uranium takes a thousand tons of pitch blend ore and the incredible amount of carbon that's used to mine, transport, refine and, and move that stuff is, is just unbelievable. They never put that in the equation when they call it clean energy. Um, you know, windmills, uh, for instance, need a lot of you need fossil fuels to manufacture the component parts. Uh, the, um, the batteries are lithium. This is a this is a finite resource. There are so many different uh, rare earths and things like these. They're finite. We have to understand we live in a finite world. Of course, there are those people who say, well, let's go to Mars and mine Mars or mine the asteroids and everything like that. And, but I always say, you know, we can't depend upon going to another country, another planet, because, I mean, if we were to ship everybody who's born every day off this planet, we wouldn't have enough rocket ships to, to, to do that. So, Well, and to your point on the lithium, I'm sure you've seen this. There's a, a, a crisis emerging in the tech industry. There are no chips. And it's, I believe, if I, I might be mistaken, but I believe Ford recently came out because, of course, uh, an automobile today is a data center with wheels. And uh, I think Ford said they're going to miss their numbers because they can't get the chips to build the cars. And, of course, you know, Elon Musk pioneering the electric vehicle and so forth. But nobody talks about that mining for lithium is one of the most environmentally damaging things we can do. Yeah, I just read a book called Brilliant Green Lies about, uh, you know, the myth that uh, the, the green technology is going to, to save us. Uh, it certainly is a better alternative, but is it going to save us? I don't know. Eight billion people, 12 billion people, 15 billion people. Where does it stop? How much of resources we can control? And again, population could be measured in many ways. I mean, one American consumes what, say, 30 people in India consume. So in terms of consumption, the U.S. is highly overpopulated compared to places like India. So uh, it's, everything's on black and white. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't have children, but what I am saying is that having a child is the most responsible thing that anybody can do. And unless you're prepared to guarantee education, love, nurturing uh, to that child, you have no business bringing a, a, a child onto this planet. And that you have to guarantee that for at least 18 years anyway. Uh, the most awesome responsibility, but anybody can do it. You know, I asked a fisherman one time in Alaska, I said, don't, for no other reason, 
protect the fishery for your children to be involved in it. And he looked at me and he said, you know, in five years, my mortgage is paid after that. I couldn't give a damn. Why does somebody like that have children? It's because it's what you do. We don't give them much thought. It's just what you do. Yes. Well, Captain, anything else you want to touch on? No, I think that, <laughs> that covers it's been a it's been it's been nice talking with you. It's been a real pleasure and uh I can't thank you enough for your time and your commitment to making a difference. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, there he is, the controversial and dare I say legendary Captain Paul. And if you're interested about more on Captain Paul and his organization, visit cshepherd.org today. That's cshepherd.org. Now, if you're a business owner, you might be uh, making yourself, uh, making running your business a little harder than it needs to be. Maybe it's time to upgrade, particularly now as the economy is uh, beginning to come back. Don't get uh, held back by QuickBooks and spreadsheets anymore. It's time to upgrade, to invest, to scale into NetSuite from Oracle. Stop paying for multiple systems that uh, don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the uh, spreadsheet kung fu and all the old software that you've outgrown. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control over your financials, human resources, inventory, e-commerce, and a whole lot more. NetSuite is everything you need in one place. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions a year in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite at netsuite.com slash different. You'll find a, a free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And today, more than ever, legendary businesses are digital businesses. And if the last handful of months have taught us anything, they've accelerated the need for digital transformation. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Visit S-P-L-U-N-K slash D to E, as in data to everything. Build a more resilient uh, organization, accelerate your cloud transformation, and exceed customer expectations with the power of data to everything. Now, you too can thrive in the data age with Splunk. S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D to E. All right. We would like to thank... The legendary Paul Watson. Thank you so much, Captain Paul. Again, you can find him at cshepherd.org. And my friends at onelifefullylived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. Uh, my friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need help, somebody can help you scale you. And somebody who's nowhere near you, visit bottleneck.online today. My friends at Atranet, I've been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And Malibu Milk. I have recently discovered this. I met the founder of Malibu Milk, and I love this stuff. Malibu is the world's first organic flax milk. Check them out at Malibu Milk with a Y dot com. And don't forget, visit Lockhead.com and subscribe today to Category Pirates, the newsletter for people with a different mind. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Please contact your mystic lawyer, mother, or psychologist before acting on anything you heard today. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the legend, the goat, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. And the left lane is the passing lane. Get out of it, please. Thank you so much to all of our healthcare heroes. Remember to listen to Katie Lang, read Farley Mowat, and thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, 
This odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Bernadette Jordan, Canadian Fisheries Minister. Sorry, Bernadette. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe. Stay legendary. Uh, Thank you for investing part of your life with us. And until we're together again, follow your different.